Hi there, Cheryl here. It's a very special day because we are here with Kim Emerson, who is a marketing strategist, expert, angel investor, founder of House of Thor, and also early stage startup expert. And Kim, I know you are so busy right now, involved in so many amazing things. And I forgot to mention all around amazing human being. I forgot to add that to your title. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah. So we are going to get started, you know, continuing the conversation, um, you know, as always, is how to support female leaders, emerging leaders, and of course, our male allies, because, you know, success, of course, doesn't happen in solitude. So we all need some help. And I want to hear about some of the amazing things that you're doing. But before we get to that, what I have found, you know, after working with Olympians and some of the most um, incredible people here in San Francisco, Silicon Valley and worldwide, is that they had some type of experience as young people that at least propelled them or got them into the mindset that maybe something extraordinary was possible. So could you share a little bit about how you grew up and kind of either a really uh, good experience that you had or maybe not so good experience you had that really uh, launched you into where you are today? Sure, I think if I go back, you know, I, I had an encouraging grandfather and he always encouraged me to do well in school and actually paid me for my grades, so that helped. But I got into Cornell. I think that was a turning point for me. Um, I think actually my family didn't expect it. And I got into the electrical engineering and I, I got in. Um, unfortunately, after um, my, in my freshman year, my grandfather passed away, who was one of my major um, you know, supporters. Um, and then to compound that, when I went back my sophomore year, the bursar told me that I had no money, that my dad because my grandfather, I guess, had been funding my education, and then when he passed away, the money disappeared. So I guess I always tell people, you know, I could have taken that as a reason to just quit and go back and use and be angry for the rest of my life, but I had gotten so involved at Cornell. I was um, in a sorority. I was social chairman for sorority. I was president of the IEEE. I, I was very active, and it just was like my whole world was falling apart, and so I was determined I was going to make it work. I couldn't get it to work through that semester. But when I went back, believe me, I was so appreciative of the opportunity to go back. I worked so hard and I ended up graduating a semester early and I still did be president of the IEEE. I still was involved in my sorority. And I guess I proved to myself that if, if you put your mind to anything, you can do it as long as you work hard. And I think I probably pulled one or two all-nighters a week. I um, tried to get the most out of my education that I could. I ended up taking a summer abroad in Spain. Um, to finish up some of my humanities, but I did, I graduated and got a great job um, in the Silicon Valley <clears throat> and always kind of gravitated towards those startups because even when I was in the IEEE at Cornell, it was like a floundering program. When I left, we had probably six different very successful programs. And so when I got into corporate, I started applying that um, attitude. And I think it is a mindset that when there's something's broken, fix it, make it better. And I kept doing that um, when I was at National Semiconductor and I had an opportunity at Boss there that also I, I credit to some of my success. He um, said I had an opportunity to work with startup um, because I was um, using their software and it was great software and I was telling everyone about it. I was kind of their marketing person within the company. And so they approached me and said, do you want to work here? 
And I was like, oh, no, a startup back then, that was in the 90s, early 90s. Um, Startups were very risky, you know, and I was insuring. Here I'm in this company, and I have this good job, and I was a supervisor already online to be a manager. So um, I went to my boss, and I could never forget what he said. He said, are you kidding? He said, if I had an opportunity to be in a startup, I'd take it in a heartbeat. And you always have a job to come back to if it doesn't work out. So when he gave me that that opportunity and just said that I didn't really have that risk that I was worried about taking, I went. And then luckily, it was my first startup, and we ended up going public, IPO, did really, really well. I was number seven employee, and I then I was hooked. Once you do a startup, and especially once it goes public, startups are like what you want to do. I did, I want I did actually go from startups. I really got recruited into a big corporation called Venture Graphics, but I didn't like it as much. So I ended up doing that five years. I became director of marketing, Asia Pacific, moved to Singapore. I had hundreds of people under me. But when I finished that, I decided um, I did not want to be in a big corporation. I just wanted to be in startups. So I started Asia Quest, which was bridging, um, helping startup small companies in Asia come into the Silicon Valley small companies from Silicon Valley branch into Asia. So that's how I met Gigi mm-hmm. Wang, who you know and now runs the entrepreneurship program at UC Berkeley. And um, she was my part- second partner, actually. My first partner um, ended up going with another startup that she and I started, and it landed in um, Boston, and I didn't want to go. So then I was sitting, at, we had just done a TV spot for our company, because we were one of the first, that company that went to Boston was one of the first seven companies from um, Guy Kawasaki's Garage.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But yeah. that was like one of the first startup incubator kind of programs. And we were one of the first 20 companies to go through that. And the only woman run company to go through that. And we got millions of dollars. Um, my partner, like I could have gone with it as the marketing um, VP, but I didn't because I wanted to stay in the Valley. And I had a relationship at the time. We we're going to get married and all that. So I didn't go. Gigi saw us on TV and she's so Gigi. She came into the room, into my office, and she said, I want to work with you. Yeah. And that was it. So Gigi and I started working and doing um, startups from that moment on. We did, like, probably 20 startups, um, and we were each working for three part-time as VPs of marketing and helping them get funding, and that's how the whole thing started back in the 90s. Yeah, and you talk about this a little bit matter-of-factly, like, oh, I raised hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and I was director of marketing there. I mean, these are really huge feats if you do one of them in a lifetime. So I just really want to recognize that you've done many, many, you've done a few lifetimes of accomplishments already. And so it's incredible. And going down is what, uh, when we were talking before we went live. Um, And so... You know, when we you talk about the well, when you talk about the mindset, so you know, we talked before coming on about, and I think you mentioned it on the interview already, that you just have to believe that what you want to do is possible. And I'm sure that you've seen startups, as we all know, you know, uh, if we were awake in the early 2000s or the yeah around there, is that not all startups, you know, survive, and so. If you look at the mindset of all of the people and the companies and everything and the vision and all of that, what mindset have you noticed is a common thread towards the ones that did survive, not just survive and thrive? And then also, where do people get into the most trouble with that? What type of mindset would that be? 
I, I, I love the term growth mindset. I think that is so important for um, entrepreneurs to like gravitate towards. And they have to realize that when you, when something bad happens, like, like what happened to me and I, it was devastating. It took a little time for me to kind of get my head around it and figure out what I was going to do. But I think when, by just taking a bad thing that happens and, and trying to learn as much as you can and move forward and not give up. So many um, entrepreneurs, they, they give up. I was just working, I mean, I, I don't want to go into the deep. There's so many I can give you examples of where they, 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 they hit a roadblock. Oh, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. And they move on. Like, Are you kidding me? No, you know this is good. And you want to like, you want to jump into their shoes and just take it with your, take it yourself. But you can't do that. So, so I think one of the things that I've learned, um, Gigi, you know, we, we all who help these startups is you have to learn where the mindset is there. And, 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 and it's like a, it, it isn't always there. It's kind of like ambition. Not everybody has strong ambition. Um, and, and, and a mindset is not always cultivated for startups. You can have a different mindset and do super in a corporation, right? But you won't make it as an entrepreneur. So some people have to just ex- understand what's comfortable for them. And maybe, and that's why I always like to push because I can see right away when I push someone beyond their current comfort zone and they thrive, like you were saying, and they love it and they, and they appreciate the push and they, they go with it, then you know that they have a chance of, of succeeding as an entrepreneur. But when someone get anytime they get criticism, they get defensive, they, you know, like there's just certain behaviors that you can see right away are going to turn someone into a successful entrepreneur. Anybody can be an entrepreneur. But if you're going to be successful and someone's going to invest in you, because what I do is I help people with their investment pitches. And a pitch is as good as it's presented. You know, I can make these amazing pitches, but if the person presenting seems meek, seems scared, seems unsure of themselves, doesn't matter how good my pitch is, it's never going to sell. So what I always tried to do is try to encourage them to be, to be powerful and confident and believe it. Do you believe it? Then show them you believe it. They want to be your partner. They want to work with you. So you have to just get that mindset understood and, 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 and cap, cap, and move with it. Yeah. So what I'm hearing then is it having a growth mindset, but also having a confidence mindset. And this is one thing, whether it's my, you know, one-on-one clients or you're going in and speaking to companies or what have you on this Be Heard course is coming out soon. We talk a lot about developing what we call an eco mindset. It's just an acronym to have empathy, mm-hmm. compassion, optimism, and just prepare oh, right. mindset because Honestly, I think the statistics five to seven people pay attention to five to seven times more of your tone and your gestures more so than your words. So that even if they know the perfect words, but it comes out if they don't are not confident or they don't believe in their idea or their company or they don't believe that they deserve funding. It's going to come through loud and clear and way much more so. So I kind of look at this. Um, to your point, as this is when, when people are pitching in front of VCs, it's like their Olympics, right? So, right, it is exactly. Olympic, uh, Olympians don't practice their entire lives, you know, to show up and you know not prepare. And so, preparing your mindset, I think you would, um, you know, agree it's just as important as preparing your pitch. I totally agree. I think, yeah, I think that's what, that's really what most um, investors look at, VCs, you know, when you talk to the VCs and you 
you know, why, why do you pick almost always? Sometimes they are investing in the person more than even the idea. Because sometimes they think even if this doesn't work, they'll find something that they're going to invent that will work. You know what I mean? Because it's the person they're investing in more than the actual company. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of times. And I just, that bears repeating because it's so incredibly important what you just said is that a lot of times VCs invest in the person more so than the idea or the company. And so um, mental preparation and just also having a plan and clarity and believing in all of those things, just so, so important. So that is probably the a huge, huge takeaway. Um, so yeah. thank you for, for bringing. And I, I think, and also like I always encourage people, don't, don't give up if you get a rejection. And whenever you talk to any entrepreneur that's succeeded and, and, and actually gotten funding, they usually have pitched a hundred times, like a hundred times. Like they got rejected 99 and one made it. So you can't get, you just have to so believe that you just keep going and keep going and keep going until it, it happens. And it usually will if you keep going, if you keep pushing. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. those 99, well the other thing I say is those 99, sometimes they didn't understand, Sometimes they couldn't invest because they were already uh, oversubscribed. Um, sometimes they were doing a favor for some. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. But when an investor invests in you, they're investing in you. Yeah. Not yeah. That and, is so incredibly important. And if you look at the course of history, what you're saying is 100% true. I've seen it time and time and time again with people that I work with. But also, if you just look at other random things like you I don't know if you've heard or read uh, Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. That book got rejected over 25 times. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a dumb idea. We don't like the book. Finally, after 20 some odd, app, you know, of him trying to find someone to publish this book, finally someone said, we'll publish it, but the name is stupid. We do not like the name. With that name, you're not gonna sell a copy. And he's like, no, he had that, what you're talking about, he had that confidence. I believe in this thing. I believe in this thing. I'm not changing this thing. I'm not giving up. And he would just go and eventually he found someone. I don't know which one it was. It was someone after the 25th publisher. Um, and now it's one of the most widely read books in history. And it has the name that he wanted. Right. <laughs> so it's the same. Right. So I concur. I've seen it, gosh, so many times. Uh, <laughs> it really couldn't be more true. So um, not only are you a lot of the things that we have scrolling down on your title as far as being a marketing strategist, an expert, um, angel investor, and also early stage startup expert, but you also have a very important and significant passion project going. So can you tell us a little bit about Girls in Tech and also why you're passionate about it? And also, you know, let us know how this weaves into everything else that we've been talking about. And, you know, finally, maybe how some of the listeners can help. Okay, well, first of all, I just have to make put things in perspective. When you're an electrical engineer and you're a woman, and especially back in the 90s when I graduated, there were only 20 out of 200. And so when I first went to work and the first time I was running a meeting, and I was actually in charge of the meeting and I was there early because I was, you know, waiting for it to start. And so of course, three of the people that had been there forever didn't know me yet, walked in and they asked me to get them coffee. <laughs> now 
I could have had a negative, I'm not secretary, you know, whatever, you know, but I didn't. I said, okay. I went and got them coffee brought back in, and then I started the meeting. And they, of course, they turned bright red because they were embarrassed they had asked me to get them coffee. <laughs> but the point is, is that it's being a woman in technology, it's gotten a lot better now. But unfortunately, even for electrical engineering, still it's only 20 to 25 out of 200 graduates. Really sad. So I, on, on a personal mission, to try to get more women to go into technical careers, especially engineering. Um, and then I, I came across Girls in Tech through Gigi Wang, um, and I love it because Girls in Tech started in San Francisco. They now have, oh my God, hundreds of, of chapters around the world. And I've had the privilege of working with women in all different, in many countries, in many states, many cities. And um, some of them that really resonated with me um, as being so needed to have happen, we're doing these workshops. We do workshops on weekends to help people start a company. So it's a startup breakthrough workshop. And I went to Indonesia. And these women who came on this weekend, and there were about 40 of them, um, and they, they all had to get permission. They can't leave their house without permission. And they had to, you know, be able to come under someone else's uh, supervision, basically. And I was just so blown away by the, their, their change in them from Friday to Sunday. Friday, they were meek, uh, un, unsure of themselves, not asking any questions. I had to pull the questions out of them and the answers. And then by Sunday, they were so empowered, like watching a flower bloom. And two of them got investment from that. And I was interviewed. I did a podcast there as well after that because somebody watching just said, oh, my God, what you did to these women, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm like, it isn't what I did. It's that they had the opportunity. They just needed someone to care enough to even give them the time, you know. And I just, I loved doing that. And I, I love seeing women get out of their little comfort zone. And that's why I say I love to empower women. I love to push them beyond their comfort zone. I love to see them let their ideas be, be spoken. So many women have these amazing ideas, but if nobody asks them, they don't share them. And I've never had that problem, I have to say. I've always been a very outspoken woman, almost to a negative point. But I, I know women have ideas that are fantastic ideas, and I think women who don't talk a lot sometimes have the best ideas. So we need, that's why I'm also a big proponent in getting women on boards. We need more women in these companies and in decision-making roles because they do have amazing ideas if you give them the opportunity to speak. And that's what Girls in Tech is about, trying to empower women to get in higher management positions, how to do that, you know, how to run a company, I mean, how to start a company, how to get funding for a company, all kinds of positive impact ideas are at Girls in Tech. And I highly Encourage anyone in any city, just look it up. I'm sure they have one near, near you. And, you know, and I think, well, first of all, that that's amazing. And you bring up an important point. They just need someone to believe in them and push them. And that's really the power of coaching. Um, I have like a formal training in that, but you are a coach as well, where they're, um, you know, a coach of sorts, because what a coach does is really push people beyond their comfort zone, but for the greater good. Um, and so that's amazing. But I think it's also safe to say that, you know, women not speaking up, it's not just happening in Indonesia or outside of the United States. Um, so whether it's women or pretty much anyone who's feels marginal, feels or is marginalized. And I know that, you know, a couple months ago, we were talking about this before when I interviewed Kelly McElhaney, 
who, um, who is also a professor at Berkeley in their Haas Business School, as well as the founder for Equity, Gender, and Leadership. I think I bring her up on almost, like most, <laughs> she brought up a point that there is a lot of marginalization within our gender. And so, um, you know, to your point, that is incredibly important. And I, I think it's, I shouldn't say think, I know it's still happening in our country, especially in technology and male dominated industries, which quite frankly is most industries. So what can you- Women women can be territorial sometimes. I think when they get the opportunity and they get the power within a male dominated industry, they don't want to lose the power and they might get threatened. There is a bit of politics that goes on for sure. But I think we need to help each other. I think that is needs to be tempered and we need to bring attention to it. I think it's brilliant what, what she's doing. I think women need to help each other and not look at us as um, threats, you know. Yeah, threats. So um so we don't get too uh overwhelmed with where we haven't come because um back in the late 80s, early 90s, for me, I was, I don't think you knew this, but I worked in institutional mm. banking before I got my master's uh-huh. in court psychology and switched careers. And to my horror, now that we're, you know, work um, doing some work with some bigger um, financial institutions, it hasn't really changed a whole lot for women in financial services. And I'm not sure how much has changed for for um women in technology either. So before we get too uh, overwhelmed and a little brought down by that, what is kind of, you know, a tiny triumph, the next step, what we can focus on, something that we can kind of sink our hands into and say, I'm going to do this a little bit better this week. Well, I think what what, ha- what I have seen work well is within, um, start some kind of a woman um, I, I like a meet, like a, a group, a, a meeting group or something of women to encourage them. Like if you're in a leadership position, if you're a director or a manager or whatever, you know, try to um, reach out to the young women coming into the organization. Give them a, a friend in the company that's a woman so that they can talk about some of the things they experience um, in a safe um, environment, you know, and they and they don't have to feel that they're um, threatened, you know, like lend a hand, I guess, to a woman who's coming into your organization. And if everybody did that, it would really help these women um, feel more comfortable and be more outspoken and, and all the things that I'm trying to have happen. I really think that would really, really be a, 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 a step in the right direction. And again, like I said, have them outside of work, get involved in something like girls in tech, volunteer, meet other women, learn from them what they did to overcome some of the issues they've encountered. Because we do all hit you know, problems. I mean, you know, I've had, I could tell you stories. One example, I had a boss that had go-go girls coming in at lunchtime and we had three women under him with, you know, we, there were women in the office. So, and he was married with kids. I mean, these kind of things, like you just can't believe it and you watch it and you're like, what do you do? Do you report to HR? I mean, and then you're like, if I do that, then he's going to hate me and I'm going to get fired, you know? So, I mean, just saying it happens. There's a lot of bad things that go on, how you deal with it, how you, um, you know, how you move on and move out of that environment in a, in a safe, comfortable, uplifting, up, upward mobility way is important. And, and, and I think women can help women just by hearing their stories. And that happens at Girls in Tech. And it happens in, in group meetings of women and, and, and men. Invite some men. 
know, if they're friend, friendly men, I don't want to exclude men. I just think we're, it's all better. It's better for everybody if men and women um, try to help women become more of the workforce in management positions so that they can incre increase the uh, potential of the company. It's been proven over and over again that when women are involved in a company, the potential for their success is higher. Yeah, and also the potential for everyone's success is higher. I mean, don't you don't need to listen to us. No, it's for the company. The company's success has a higher research on um, having a diverse workforce that um, uh, Kim's seen it firsthand, but you don't even need to listen to us. There's plenty of plenty of research on everything that she's saying. So for everyone listening, people that are interested in girls in tech or interested in learning more about you. Um, what do you recommend? I know that there's a website here, girlsintech.org, if you would like to, and you don't have to be in the technology industry to support this organization if you're passionate about um, empowering girls um, in technology. And that, like, um, like Kim said, there's probably one near you. Again, it's girlsintech.org. And would you like to add anything about that or how else can we help? No, I think that's that's great. And uh, there there is one other that we talked about that I'd like to just say. Um, I due to COVID, I've gotten very involved with a, a um, philanthropy here in our area, and it's called Everyone Matters Ministries. And I encourage you wherever you are, see if you can help with these problems. There are people. It, this helps with people who are transitionally homeless. They haven't gotten onto the street yet, but they're one step away from it. And we basically provide temporary houses for them um, for six months to 18 months. And we coach them and help them save money and get into um, a actual apartment or a home. So I just, I think um, in this time, we all have to also be um, em empathetic to what's going on around us and not just stay in our homes and do nothing. Do what you can. You know, I, I do, um, we do like lunches for people and we prepare them as a family and you know, whatever you can do to give back is great, but everyonemattersministries.com is a, is a wonderful um, place to put a donation if you're, you feel open to that. Yeah, we will definitely um, do that. And I do want to add just through some volunteer work, you know, that I've done is that, you know, sometimes we have a conception in our mind and, I, you know, to be totally transparent, I did, you know, many years ago when I went to volunteer at our synagogue for a, shelter and we think that homeless people they look a certain way or they're a certain type of people but they're really like you and me and they're people that are working hard they're people that have just through luck or circumstance or yeah, financial training or for whatever different reasons um have you know are struggling and uh, one example that stuck in my mind, there was a gentleman who had a white button down shirt and a sport coat. If you saw him walking in the financial district in San Francisco or wherever, he blended in with everyone else, but he was homeless with his daughter because he had a full-time job in an accounting office, but it was very administrative. So he had, and his wife had left him. So he had to choose between, mm -hmm. he had to have childcare. So he had to choose between a car to get to work or his apartment. And so uh, that really opened my eyes. So this, the work that you're doing this with this transitional shelter, it can be just what people need to kind of get, have stumbled a little bit to get back on their feet. Right. 
to get back on that path. I totally agree. And also show their children that, you know, you can have hardship, but you can bounce back and it'll inspire them to kind of help people behind them. So thank you for doing that work. We will check mm -hmm. out um, everyonemattersministries.com. And Kim Emerson, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to following all of the amazing things that you're doing. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I really enjoyed it.